Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is Saturday morning, and I'm drinking a hot cup of Bottom Gun Coffee from my friends at BottomGunCoffee.com. I have another great show lined up for you, but before we get started, I just wanted to mention my latest leadership book. It's called You Have the Watch, and it's available on my website and on Amazon. In fact, it's already a number one new release and a bestseller on Amazon. I'm really excited about this new book because it's not actually a book. It's a guided journal for leaders that will take you through an entire year of leadership training. There are 50 themes in the book, and each day you will reflect on a different facet of that theme. Now, this journal is designed to be on your desk at work for you to read and reflect on for about 15 minutes each morning. Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them, and this journal helps you practice those skills. So if you're interested in this guided journal, go to youhavethewatch.com or Amazon and pick up your copy today. Also, keep an eye out on my social media feed for upcoming book signing events in your area. Now, if you're looking for ways to support what I do on the show, purchase any one of my books at johnsrenny.com. You can use the discount code DEEP at checkout to get additional savings. Well, that is it today. My guest is Grant Morgan. Now, Grant did something amazing. When the world went crazy during the pandemic, Grant stayed calm and saw opportunity. He started a company to develop a technology to disinfect the air in indoor spaces. His company, R0, is now saving lives and is worth more than $250 million. You know, as leaders, we want to make a dent in the universe, and Grant figured out a way to do it. This was a fascinating conversation that I know you're going to enjoy. So, are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Grant Morgan. While most of us were busy hoarding toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic, Grant was working on a plan to change the world. As CEO and co-founder of R0, he set his sights on developing groundbreaking biosafety technology to save lives in the COVID-19 era and beyond. And in less than two years, he built an all-star team and developed partnerships with over 600 schools the Mayo Clinic, and the U.S. Olympic team. And now the company is valued at over $250 million. I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about how he built his company and the leadership lessons he learned along the way. So Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Really excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to meet you and great to have you on the show. And congratulations on all your success so far. And I'm I'm sure it's just the beginning. It sounds like you're doing something that's that's very much needed in the world. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It's it's humbling. It's been a wild ride. And, and like you said, we're just getting started. 
Yeah, that's wild. So first of all, tell us about your background. Uh, you, we, we talked a little bit beforehand. Uh, we're both engineers, uh, both mechanical engineers. So how did you go from being an engineer and you worked at a global company like I did? How did you go from that to a startup CEO in a high technology space and growing in leaps and bounds? How did that happen? Uh, it's it's actually a little bit accidental, uh, a little bit intentional, um, but I'm actually going to start before I even got to college. Um, so I... Um, I was applying to a bunch of schools for different things from, you know, math to business to engineering and everything in between. And um, the school I ended up going to Cal Poly, you have to declare your major when you apply. And so I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so uh, I figured, Hey, I like Legos and I'm good at math. So let's try mechanical engineering. And, um, and (laughs) so mechanical engineering became my major and um, that was uh, worked out for me pretty well. But uh, when I was graduating, I, you know, I, I thought about how I wanted to apply what I was learning and, you know, could have gone into oil and gas industry or, or energy. I could have gone into automotive um, and a number of different options, but I decided I wanted to do something that applied uh, my, my, myself, my time, my energy, my skill set to something that at the end of the day was helping people. And so I got into healthcare and I worked for a, a giant company called Abbott at the time. It was like a 90,000 person international healthcare conglomerate. And, um, I did their management development program where I got to rotate every six months for two years. I got exposed to different business units, uh, different functions. I uh, got to meet a lot of really impressive people and and learned a ton. Um, but one of the things I learned is that I wanted a sort of bigger slice of the pie and uh, and and broader set of responsibility. And so uh, jumped ship to a smaller med device startup called NDC at the time. Now they're called Confluent, I believe. But I got to stand up and lead our neurovascular value stream. So my team would basically take a napkin sketch from like a Stryker, J&J, Medtronic, all the big dogs and and take a napkin sketch and an idea of a therapy that they wanted to bring to market. My team would figure out how to design, develop, manufacture, scale it up, get it through um, FDA uh, trials and uh, ship it off to a lower cost manufacturing facility. And so um, I got what I was looking for there um, and uh, sort of brought me to my next realization that I wanted to try something in an unregulated industry. so I jumped ship. I had a friend who uh, was, you know, I was talking to about uh, potentially starting a business, and uh, uh, you know, he he said, "Why don't you come on come on over and do this with me?" And I said, "Well, what what would I do?" And he said, "I have no idea." And I said, <laughs> "Perfect, sounds great. I'm in. Let's do it." And so, uh, so I jumped ship, and I, I believe my first title was like director of special projects or something, like very indicative yes. of the fact that I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, but I was the most technical person on the founding team and, and ended up being sort of the translation layer between our engineers and, uh, sort of the business, uh, side of the house. And, uh, turns out that's called product management in the tech world. And so I became a student of, of, uh, product management and software engineering, really fell in love with software. And, uh, and, you know, that experience lit my entrepreneurial fire as well. So, um, I led the product and engineering teams, uh, at that company grew it for six, seven years, eventually got acquired by Allstate, uh, and spent, you know, six months getting the ship to port, um, figured that, you know, the, the big company, uh, scene was not my thing and, and, uh, had the itch to go start something else. So I, I did. And then, um, you know, fast forward to the beginning of the pandemic when we were seeing sort of the world fall apart, all the loss of human lives and 
the economic devastation that was happening at the time too. And um, just felt really compelled to jump in and, and do something to help. And so, uh, you know, that's where, you know, uh, R0 uh, came to be, um, but collected uh, to my two co-founders that I'd known from sort of a past life. And, um, and uh, we were off to the races. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's a similar story just in terms of like going from, you know, big company to small company. And then once you get into a small company, there's a there's something there that is I'm not going back to the big company again. It sounds like you you had that bug and you weren't going back. You were you were continuing the entrepreneurial route. So yeah, yeah it's funny. Like I think you're you're right. I think um, you know, my whole life I was taught to, you know, put your head down, work your way up the ladder, you know, right. stay loyal to the company that you uh that you you start with and and, um, you know, I've always been sort of, uh, uh, I, I maybe maligned, uh, maladjusted and, and I like, I don't, the status quo doesn't sit right with me. And so, um, you know, I've always sort of tried, uh, different things, taken different risks. And I remember when I, when I jumped ship from, from, uh, the medical device industry to, uh, to, to a startup where I had no idea what I was going to do. I remember telling my parents and like, they just like, they couldn't wrap their heads around yeah. it. And yeah. I remember my mom was like that, you know, we will always have a place for you. Uh, if this doesn't work out, you can always come home. Like, well, you know, and I was like, mom, you already converted my bedroom to an office, but, uh, but, uh, thank you for the offer and and thanks for the faith in me. Um, but I think the point was like, I, I, you realize a couple of things, but one is like at a startup, uh, or, or any role where you're, you're taking a, a leap of faith and, and trying something you've never done before, you get to figure out, uh, what you're made of. You you are accountable for the wins, you're accountable for the losses, and you you have to kind of build your own safety net. And it's a really empowering thing when you start to realize like, hey, I've got this. Like, um, And then the other thing that you know, was one of the sort of unlocks for me was realizing like, nobody knows what they're doing uh, yeah. in this world. If you're doing something that no one's ever done before, like there's no playbook for it. And you right. kind of just have to figure it out. And and, um, you know, understanding that other people are in that same boat, it, it was sort of empowering to me as well. Um, and, uh, and once you catch the bug and, and prove to yourself that, you know, you, you, you trust yourself to, to just figure it out, then it's, uh, it's a really powerful thing. Yeah, I agree. So what was the big idea that started R0? Now, what, what problem were you trying to solve at the time? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, uh, at, at first it was just this like strong compulsion to, to help fight this, you know, global pandemic. And mm. we didn't really know what we were going to do, but we, we thought that this was one of those moments throughout history where the world changes and started looking at past historic events and, and seeing what we could glean from how the world changed from those things. And, you know, most recently we, you know, uh, looked at like 9-11, for example, and out of 9-11 came basically the entire Homeland Security apparatus. So, you know, hired 14,000 TSA agents, put air marshals on flights. You still can't carry a water bottle or wear your shoes through, uh, through security. And, um, and then, you know, there was, there was an entire private industry that was spawned to really support this apparatus. So think like the Palantirs of the world. And so, you know, point being, there are these massive societal and infrastructural changes that arose out of this tragic event. And we thought that there would be similar changes on a global scale, but they would re revolve around really two things. It's trust and safety. Um, the safety piece is a little bit more obvious. Uh, you know, how do we create physically safer spaces for people to, to gather? And then the trust piece, a little bit less obvious, born out of this idea that coming out of COVID, there, there would be sort of psychological scar tissue built up in the eyes and the minds of the public. And people wouldn't want to just go back to normal. They would want to go forward to a healthier, safer, new normal. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, turned out to be 
to be right. But I think, you know, a couple of realizations that we had as we started thinking about like, what does this business look like post COVID? Um, you know, a couple of realizations we had that led us to how we see the world, you know, one being, uh, you know, similar to, to you. And I think you kind of alluded to this at the beginning of the show at the intro, but beginning of the pandemic, like everybody's wiping down their groceries with like Clorox. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you had the quarantine box in the corner of your, your garage. So you, you take your hazmat suit off when you come home yeah. from the grocery store, but point being, you know, had this sort of light bulb moment that we're still using the same archaic chemicals to fight COVID in 2020 that we used to fight the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. And in those hundred years, we've sent people to the moon. We've, you know, invented the internet and self-driving cars and, uh, it, but we're still using the same archaic chemicals and, um, you know, thought that there had to be a better way. Um, another realization we had was that, you know, humans are an indoor species. We spend 90% of our lives indoors. And the implications of that are that, the indoor spaces where we do spend our time have a massive impact on your overall health. And uh, I would go as far as to say that your facilities manager or the person making decisions about the buildings where you spend your time has a greater impact on your overall health than your doctor does. And uh, I, I truly believe that. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and then the third thing, uh, third realization that we had was basically, you know, look at the data from before COVID, like we've done an objectively terrible job at keeping ourselves safe in, in what really amounts to our natural habitat as humans in our spaces, like 40 million Americans get the flu every year. And somehow we've just accepted that that's normal. Um, and, you know, MRSA or staph infections kill more people every year than emphysema, Parkinson's, AIDS, and murder combined. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we, we thought that, you know, this problem exists and there are tools and technologies out there that if we put them together in the right way and innovate, um, that we can actually improve the quality of human health and uh, and um, really uh, uh, you know uh, create safer natural habitats for ourselves um, indoor spaces. So uh, so we were off to the races. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've seen the products been on your website and it's pretty innovative. And I think it's definitely a need. There's definitely a need for it, and I think you've you've shown where there's needs for it in hospitals and schools and and really any any indoor space really in workplaces. It's so it's fantastic. And again, as we go back to work, right? Those of us who are going back to offices, you know, how do we? You said we like you said we want to feel safe, and this is a way where you can say that there's some level of safeness or you know something that's being proactively maintaining a safe environment. I think it's fantastic. So you've you've definitely hit. You struck while the iron was hot, as they say, right? Yeah. I mean, I, again, I think if if the pandemic hadn't happened and I knew what I know today, I absolutely still would have started the, this business. Um, I think this was a need that was unmet. And I think it's, you know, frankly, crazy that we like regulate, you know, the water that we drink, uh, you know, maybe a liter or two of a day, but we do nothing to regulate like the indoor air that we breathe 18 to 20,000 times a day. Um, and, <laughs> a and you know. Yeah. And the, and there's like, you start to learn all these weird anecdotes. Like for example, if you and I were sitting in a, in the same conference room together right now um, with a, a few other people on average, about 4% of the volume of every single breath that you take was in somebody else's lungs in that room. It's kind of the equivalent of respiratory backwash. And, um, and when you start to think about these things that like, it makes a ton of sense. Like, why don't we do something you know better than we have before? And, and um and I think that, you know, COVID has created this societal awareness of the relationship between indoor spaces and human health. And I think there's, uh, you know, that's catalyzed the demand, but 
Um, but I think this was inevitable. Um, uh, and, and frankly, I think it took too long for us to, to get to this point where we, we realized that we need to improve. Yeah. Wow. That's great. It's fantastic. And again, you know, a lot of people were making, um, ventilators, you know, when the thing came out, oh, all these companies jumped on the ventilator bandwagon, you, you kind of sat back and said, well, what's the, what's it going to be at the end of all this? And, uh, and you, you guys have a product that, that really provides a great solution. So, you know, my hat's off to you for that. That's fantastic. So one of the things I want to ask you is, uh, <laughs> what are some of the challenges going from a three employees to 150 plus employees in two years. And I know I've gone through similar growth things in my career, uh, growth curves in my career. So I wanna hear from you. What were some of the challenges that you faced as you grew the company that fast? How much time we got? Um, it's, <laughs> it, it, it is unequivocally you know, the, the, the most difficult uh, challenge I've, I've faced as uh, in my professional career. It's, it's incredibly, you know, humans are complex. And, 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 and people are, you know, it's my lizard brain, like linear thinking, engineering mind, like wants deterministic, like inputs and outputs. Um, humans are not that way. It's the opposite. Um, but I think, uh, the, you know, one, one thing that compounds some of the difficulties is, is the, um, uh, is the remote environment. Um, so we are, uh, uh remote first in office second. So we do have a headquarters here in Salt Lake City. We also have um, uh, some physical space in San Francisco where most of our product and engineering team are, but we have employees in 14 different countries all over the world. Um, and, uh, and we got to come together, collaborate and, and uh, you know, make progress. And, and so that compounds our challenges, but I think it, it largely, it comes down to um, communication uh, in context. I think, you know, when you're adding 15 people every other week, uh, to the team, like it, it's really challenging to keep everybody aligned, um, you know, uh, tightly aligned uh, and and moving in the same direction. And, and it requires, um, you know, over communication uh, and and, you know, there's roles and responsibilities that are changing priorities that are shifting all the time. And there's so many moving pieces that you have to try to to to, to keep together. Um, it, it's really, really challenging. Um I think that, uh, you know, the uh, making sure that everybody has the context they need to be able to be autonomous and make the decisions, uh, you know, push the decision making down into the teams where where the work's actually getting done. Um, that's incredibly challenging. Um, I, th I think that being uh, uh, focused is another uh, challenge. Um, so you bring new people on, there's fresh ideas and a lot of good ideas, really good ideas. Um, but you can't possibly do everything at once. Um, and so uh, we historically, I, you know, I'll take credit for this, like I'm not great at saying no to things uh, or haven't been, um, but but you have to, um, you have to, or or you'll, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts is, is sort of the inevitability. And, um, you know, as a startup, you have limited resources and, and time is, is, you know, uh, you know, the enemy, I guess. And, and, um, and so you have to be laser focused on what the mission is and make sure that, that you know everybody's pulling in the same direction and not a second is wasted. Um, it's easier said than done. And, and I can't claim that we've gotten it 100% right by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I think those are the biggest things is just the communication um, and, and, and the focus um, as you, as you uh, continue to scale. But uh, it's, it's really hard. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them. Best-selling leadership author John S. Rennie knows this. That's why he's written a new book called You Have the Watch. It's a guided journal for leaders designed to take you through an entire year of leadership training. By the end of the year, you will master 50 of the most important leadership skills. If you want to have a greater impact on the results and people in your organization, go to youhavethewatch.com and pick up your copy today. You know, one of the things, you know, as you go from three to 150, how, you know, one of the things I think might be difficult, and I was wondering how you did it, is how do you, you know, you have a founder's intent, you're a startup, so you have your founders over there, and you have the, how do you prevent, like, mission drift? How do you prevent, like, um, you know, these new people coming in with their own ideas, and then suddenly you're off in a direction that wasn't the intent of the company at all? So how do you keep everybody kind of glued to the mission, the original mission of the company? Has that been difficult, or is there, are there tricks that you used? Yeah. <laughs> Extremely. And, <laughs> okay. and like, you know, I, I won't sit here and pretend to have like all the world's problems solved. I, there's some things um, that I think we've done right, whether intentional or unintentionally. Um, but, uh, but I think we've gotten, you know, more luckily gotten more right than we have wrong. Um, but I think the mistakes are the things that, that give you the scar tissue that, uh, that allow you to, to get things more right than wrong uh, moving mm-hmm. forward. But I'd say that, um, you know, it starts with people. Like you have to hire the right people um, because you know the early leaders that you bring into your company are going to have an outsized impact on 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 who you become as a company and how you execute and how the team thinks. Your ability to recruit and build and scale. Um, but uh, you know the early leaders are going to set the trajectory for the different functions that they lead, and so you have to really, really get those right. Um, and, uh, you know, luckily we, we brought on some, some incredible people, uh, early on, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, uh, I'll call out one, uh, Neil Day, who's, who's, um, you know, as much a, a mentor to me uh, these days as he is a, um, an employee of our zero, but, um, he's, you know, our CTO and he's built a world-class engineering team, but, you know, people are drawn to him. They want to work for him. And, uh, and he's just an incredible leader and, Having him early on uh, is, you know, is is it has made an outsized impact on the quality of our engineering team and our ability to scale there. And it's just, it, it, I'm I'm blown away at what he's been able to do. But um, you know, if you bring in the right people on, uh, it's you know they'll attract the right people. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of leaders like Neil, for example, had people from his network that you know he brought along that are just absolute world-class talent, um, that, that, uh, you know, that would follow Neil through the gates of hell. And, um, so that's, you know, very positive example. And then, you know, on, on, on the flip side, like we've definitely gotten some hires wrong, um, hired the wrong sort of skill set for the, the stage we were at, um, uh, you know, hired people that were extremely talented, but didn't have like, you know, we figured we'd put them somewhere, we'd figure out where to put them later, um, without sort of defined, like squarely defined roles and responsibilities. Um, there's a number of things we've, we've gotten wrong with the hiring, but, uh, getting hiring wrong, especially the early leaders hurts the most. Um, and the, the sort of consequence of getting it right is, is, uh, you know, the biggest value add and the biggest benefit, but it all starts with people. Uh, yeah, I was wondering about that, you know, and, I, and I've had similar experience where I've hired good people and it sort of attract other people. And but um, so how do you do it? I mean, 
you're you're a startup, right? So you've got people that are working for, you know, you have a lot of contacts in Silicon Valley. So they're likely working for some pretty exciting companies, right? That are doing some world-class stuff. And you, you know, you put up your sign, you, you, you know, here we are as a company and you say, you know, come work for me. How do you attract top talent to a startup company where you don't have much to offer yet, right? You're, you're, you know, and I know this because I'm speaking from, from my history too. It's like, how do you attract good people with a, like a hope and a dream and, a, and an idea? Uh, just curious how you did it. Yeah, I think um, time, you, you have to spend as much time as necessary, which is way more than you think, um, recruiting and finding the best people. And what's interesting is like, in the, in the early days, and this is my third company now, and I've done this, like uh, I've done this wrong a number of times. Uh, <laughs> but in, in, in the early days, like you adopt that mentality that, Hey, we're just a startup. We don't have anything to offer. Who's going to work here instead of like a Google. Um, but what's interesting is like, we, we have an investor who's kind of changed my, my thinking and flipped, flipped the paradigm and, and said like, look, like it's a privilege to work here. And, and we're, you know, we're, we're doing something special. This is an incredible group of people. And if you're going to work here, you better want to work here. And so that's a requisite when we hire people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's often easy to, to go for the pedigree and, you know, look at their LinkedIn, you see all those logos that, that are you know, recognizable <laughs> yeah. in senior level positions. And, and that's really nice, uh, you know, on paper, but, but at the end of the day, what's going to get people out of bed every day, what's going to get them to persevere um, through the tough times and, and the challenges is if they're actually motivated by the mission and they have this sort of intrinsic draw to what you're doing. And I would take somebody that wants to be here um, over somebody who, you know, isn't, you know, fully bought in uh, 10 times out of 10. Um, even if their resume might not you know, look the same, of course, they have to have the right skill set fit and things like that. But um, you just have to be really true and honest to like who you are, um, very authentic. You have to have a point of view on what you're building and, and where you're going um, and make sure that, you know, that, you know, that there's alignment around those things um, and what people can bring to the table. And I think that's the most important thing is, is. You have to know who you are, uh, be able to articulate that to the world and make sure that, you know, as a you know, bare, bare minimum requisite, like they, people have to be motivated by the mission and, and, and bought in and, and passionate about what you're doing um, uh, more than anything. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, it's it's the people that kind of buy into this and they get excited about what you're trying to do. You know, you're making a dent in the universe. You're doing your own dent and they want to be part of that. Now, I've really been... It's been interesting how I've kept employees for so long that I thought, well, there's no way this this person will stay with me, you know, and they have stayed because they're excited about the mission. And and that's what and really, if you can find people that are passionate about what you're trying to do, it's going to they're not going to be looking for the for all the, you know, the benefits of a big company. They they see something where they they can have their hands and be an integral part of something that's that's doing something completely different. And they're excited about that opportunity. So, yeah, I think the mission drives a lot of. Some of a lot of those people that come that want to do something special. And it sounds like you had a pretty good luck with that. So yeah, it's it's been tough, but I think um, you know, uh look at like guys, I will pick on Neil again. Like Neil was the CIO of Walmart. And like, like, you know, in the early days, I was like, why is he even talking to us? Let alone, you know, <laughs> and to him, this is a really, really interesting problem to solve. And yeah, he he yeah. knows that. Um, you know, it benefits people and, and, um, and, uh, you know, he was, he's, he's intrigued because he knows that like, Hey, there's an opportunity, there's a technology gap here. And like, I know technology and I think I have something to offer in solving this problem. And it's really interesting and it's solvable. And, um, and so, you know, that immediately resonated with Neil and, and, um, 
And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, truth be told, we actually brought him on as an advisor first playing the long game. And we yeah. knew that once we got him involved and got him in the, in the lab, like, you know, I, I caught him soldering, uh, uh, soldering a bunch of uh, resistors to a PCBA. One time I was like, all right, he's in, like <laughs> we've got <laughs> yeah. him. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's really hard to find those people. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's, we're lucky to have Neil and we're lucky to have a lot of the other leaders that we have as well. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I read is your leadership philosophy philosophy was really interesting to me. It's you say it's to create an environment where people can do their best, the best work of their lives. Now, I love that. Why did you choose that as a mantra? Because I love that. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I, I talk a lot to the team about how, you know, a company is just like, it's this weird thing. And I got this from the, um, uh, 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 from a book that I read a while back uh, called Sapiens. Um, but it was talking about like the idea of a company, and, like all a company is, is a bunch of people that are aligned around like an idea. And, and uh, like, if, if like everybody left R0, like R0 doesn't exist. Like nobody's, it, it, there's not a thing that represents R0. Like our, our products will be in the field or whatever, but like they're, they're like R0 doesn't exist. It is this amalgamation of people that are, that are aligned around this, this idea. And so I talked to the team about how like we as a company will only ever be as great as our people. Um, and, and we bring people on because like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'd say fairly decent at a, at a lot of different things, but not particularly expert in, in very many things at all. And so, you know, you bring on people that know more about their function than you do and get out of the way. Um, you know, you bring them on to tell, you know, to tell us what to do and to lead. And, and, um, and so I think that if you boil that down to sort of first principles, it's, it's about like performance conditions is about the environment and creating that environment to allow people to do the best work of their lives here. And, um, and so you bring on the right people and you create that environment and, uh, magic happens. And, you know, you have people that, and frankly, like you don't have time to micromanage as you scale. And, and, uh, oftentimes it's, it's hard to relinquish, you know, a lot of the decision-making, especially early on in your, your career as a transition to a leader. But at the end of the day, like, my job is to define the the what, not the how, um, and and make sure that you know we we are all pointed in the same direction. But but again, get out of the way and and allow the team to to work. And the hard part is is I mentioned this a little bit early earlier, but like really push like you want to drive autonomy up and context up, and so you push the 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 context down into the teams where the decisions are actually getting made and the and the work's actually getting done. And you know if you can do that successfully then, you know, not a lot needs to get like run up the flagpole. People don't get analysis paralysis. They, they, they just get it intrinsically. They know the mission, they know the direction we're going and they can figure it out. Um, Cause you know, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me on the team that are, that are solving these problems. And that's what we brought them on to do. Um, and so that's where you get the magic is when you have this sort of like unconstrained thinking, but this sort of tight alignment towards, uh, towards a common goal or a mission um, and, uh, and you create, uh, the, the team structure and organize the team in the right way. You create the right feedback loops and communication channels. Um, and, uh, and, and just let the team go. And, and it's, it's amazing to see what, what, what people can accomplish. Yeah, that's really powerful. I know I write about the same exact thing in my books and, uh, but yet I don't see as many leaders doing that. So they think that they have to have all the answers that they need to control things that they need to have strict policy and procedures. And you've come to this realization that 
if you build, if you bring on great people and you set a vision and a mission and you align everybody towards those goals, then you don't really have to have a lot of control. You, you, you really actually are freeing people up to bring their best to work every day. And, um, and it's, it, it, what you end up getting is better performance than if you try to control it all from 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 the top. And uh, it it seems to not be understood by a lot of uh, companies still. They're still trying to push down these ideas, uh, and you know, uh, you know, and you're always limited to the the the, the capability of the leader when you do that, right? And as you're yep. you're quick to point out, you know a lot of things, but you're not an expert in everything. And I'm the same way. I know a lot of things, I have a lot of experiences. But there are people on my team every day that blow me away with ideas that I never thought of, right? And, yep. and you're just like, oh, shoot, that would work, you know? And you get excited. I get excited. Like, we could do that, you know? Exactly. And so I think you you unleash that potential when you give people that freedom to bring themselves to work and to be their best. So I commend you for that. And I don't see enough <laughs> leaders practicing that very simple philosophy. Yeah, I I... I say it out loud. I, I don't always practice it. I'm working every day on, on mm. becoming a better leader. It's easier said than done. Um, and, uh, I had a, a mentor, uh, equate this sort of style of leadership to like backseat driving. And so, <laughs> you know, if, if you, if you, you know, you're, you're with a bunch of friends and you're like, Hey, let's go, let's go out to dinner at, you know, restaurant a or whatever. Um, like you, you, you define like, Hey, let's go meet at restaurant a at 5 PM. And you don't get in the car with them and, and backseat drive and say, hey, tr- take a left here, take a right, right here, right. take a left here. Like you, you all know the, the, the destination and, and you got to trust that people are going to know how to get there. And, um, you know, they might take a different, different path than you and they might take a shortcut that you didn't know about. They might take a, you know, a, a little bit longer to get there. But uh, at the end of the day, what matters is the destination. It's the what. That's mm. the outcome. Yeah, I agree. That's great. So, so, you know, we're wrapping up, getting close to the end here. What kind of advice would you give to other, uh, maybe some other people that are considering starting up a company and building a team and uh, what, you know, based on your experiences, you know, the, the, the scars, the cuts, the bruises, what are some, what's some advice you give to startup CEOs today? Um, this might not be like typical or like super <laughs> inspirational uh, uh, advice, but it's the God honest truth. I'd say, take a good hard look in the mirror and really ask yourself like how bad you want it. And, and if, if you don't have a burning passion in this, this like, you know, like insatiable, like desire to, to go do this, then don't do it. Um, it, and, uh, the reason I say that is because it's really, really hard. Like you sacrifice, uh, relationships, you sacrifice, you know, family and friends and, and, you know, you sacrifice your weekends, vacations. Um, it's, it's, you, you read about it and you read about like the rainbows and unicorns in in tech crunch, but you don't read about the 99% of companies that that don't make it. And, you know, the, the most, some of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my life, you know, stemmed from me being a part of a startup and, and, uh, it, it's, it's not easy. And, um, and you have to have that will to win and persevere. Um, that's, that's table stakes, but if you do have that, then do it. Um, and you know, one sort of middle ground is go join a startup. Um, and if, if you want to you know test it out, go, go join a startup and see what it's like. Um, it's a lot of duct tape and bail wire under the hood. It's chaotic, it's hardworking. Um, but it is the most rewarding, 
uh, thing that I've ever done in my entire life is, is being able to you know, prove to yourself that you can fundamentally change the way that the world does something or, or, uh, yeah. you know, control your own destiny. And I think that's, what's, that's, what's empowering about it. That's what's like, uh, infectious, I guess, pun intended, uh, about it, uh, to me. And, and that's, what's most rewarding, but you know, you can, you can change a lot of people's lives if you, if you get it right, but, um, but it's not for the faint of heart. Um, so, you know, you, you gotta want it real bad. And if you're going to do it, people, people are everything. Um, so that's the sort of positive, more inspirational, I guess, uh, by the book, uh, answer for you. I love it. I love it. Actually, I wrote an article one time is don't ever start a band after my first thing, two years of of startup life. (laughs) Yeah, It's tough. So, but I think you, if, like you said, if you can look in the mirror and say, I really want this and I really want to be committed to it, then do it. But it is going to be a lot harder than you've ever, I mean, I worked in corporations for 22 years and it was never that hard, never as hard as, you know, making payroll, you know, twice a month for six years, you know, that's, uh, you know, some days it's, it's, it's tougher than others, you know, but it's, uh, exactly. it's tough, you know, and the, so, the winds yeah. are sweeter and, yeah, and yeah. the lows are lower, but you know, like you said, it's like it, it the stakes are higher, like the, yeah. they're, they're, you're putting food on the table for people's families and you're exactly. providing for them. And, and the, the decision-making changes from like tactical decision-making where it's like, Hey, I'm a cog in the wheel. And like, I have to make sure that, you know, my cog turns the right way. Um, and if it doesn't like the other 150,000 cogs are going to turn the right way and like, you know, whatever, um, it it goes from that to more like existential threats. Like you said, how do I make payroll? Like, how do I, you know, how do I, uh, deliver for my investors? Like, how do we get to this next milestone? But it's, it's existential threats to not just you, but, but your team as well. And so there's a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure. Um, and, and at times it's not fun, but you know, to be honest, there's, there's nothing I'd rather be doing. So Same here. That's the same thing. It's it's addictive. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's crazy. It's hard work, but it's a it's it's also like you said, the highs are high, the lows are low, but it's uh it's a wild ride. It's so I'll I'll, yeah. I'll never work for another company again. You know, I like the startup life. So uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, excellent. Well, Grant, this has been really good. How can people find out more about you and your company? Yeah, check us out on on the internet, uh, r0.com, just all all one word, R-Z-E-R-O.com. Um, drop us a line on, on LinkedIn, Grant Morgan, come look me up and, uh, uh, you know, come, come say hi at, at, if we're at a conference that you're at, but, uh, uh, website's the best way to get a hold of us. Okay, great. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Grant, I appreciate you coming on the show and congratulations again for all your success. And again, it sounds like you're doing it the right way. And I, I commend you for that. We're trying. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks a lot, John. Really appreciate you having me. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks again. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care.
Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production.